and what he does. See, all the Bible, in other words, is God's special revelation about himself in the person and work of his son, Jesus. In Jesus, what do we see? We see the character of God and the closeness of God. In Jesus, we see the face of God. Jesus is God's love coming off the page for you. And when you see that, it changes everything. Because Jesus makes the invisible God known. So God's word is all about Jesus, and Jesus is God's word to you. Now, <laughs> now we come to try to tackle the impossible task of trying to understand the Godhead, the Trinity, one God and three persons. And as I said, this is an impossible task. Because how in the world can we as finite beings begin to comprehend the infinite? <laughs> how can creatures who are bound by space and time begin to grasp the creator who's outside of space and time? How in the world can we who have a beginning and an end how can we delve into the depths of the eternal God who has no beginning and has no end? This is why I struggled all week because I was like, how do you preach God? <laughs> and then I struggled, what scripture am I going to use that captures the essence of the Trinity? Well, I settled on 1 John 4, and I hope you'll see why. I'm going to have you stand for the reading of God's word. We're going to look at 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 21. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So what's the assumption? If you don't love, you're not born of God and you don't know God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Why? Because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest, made known, displayed among us. And what's that? That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Big theological word right there, okay? What it means is this. Propitiation means God's wrath is poured out, but it's deterred away from something and poured out onto something. So when he says that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, it means God's wrath is deterred away from you and it's poured out all on his son. And because all of his wrath is poured out on his son, God is satisfied. That's propitiation, okay? So he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, 
we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he's given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us. So that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. And here it is. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is the word of the Lord. All right, I prayed. We're going to jump right in. There's a lot to unpack and a lot of details that we got to go through. But A.W. Tozier, in his book entitled The Knowledge of the Holy, said this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any person, it's not what they at a given time may say or do, but what they deep in their heart conceive God to be like. See, we're entering into the deep waters here, okay? <laughs> we're trying to search out the unsearchable God because God is transcendent, which means he's wholly other than us. He's fully distinct from us. If he's wholly transcendent and wholly other, then how in the world can we describe him? Well, I think the Westminster Confession of Faith does a good job in describing God. Now, this is just fascinating, quick history lesson. The Westminster Confession of Faith, it's a document that was started in 1641, okay, by the Westminster Assembly, which was 121 theologians and clergy from Scotland and England who were tasked by the English Parliament to come up with the standards of what the Church of England confesses and professes to believe. It took five years to complete. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine getting 121 theologians to all agree on something and then to have it in written form? Every word, 
Every sentence, every paragraph was thoroughly thought through and debated until its completion in 1646. This confession of faith became the official standard of what the Church of England believes. And it was the official standard of what Protestant churches believe. Although not all Protestant churches have embraced the Westminster Confession of Faith as its standard. But it's what our denomination has subscribed to and believes. So when the Westminster Assembly came to the question of who is God and what is God, they answered with three long paragraphs that I'm not going to read, okay? I'm just going to give you the larger catechism's question and answer. It's question seven when they ask, what is God? Answer, God is a spirit in and of himself, infinite in being, glory, blessedness, and perfection, all-sufficient, eternal, unchangeable, incomprehensible, everywhere present, almighty, knowing all things, most wise, most holy, most just, most merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. (laughs) I'm not going to unpack all that, okay? (laughs) So I just want to look at a few of these, just to give you a flavor, all right? First, God is a spirit. What does that mean? What means he's immaterial? So if he's immaterial, he can't be measured. If he's immaterial, he can't be weighed. He can't be combined to time and space. If he's immaterial, he's invisible, which means the only way we can see him is if he manifests himself through some physical medium, like a burning bush, or like a glory cloud, or like fire. When speaking of God as infinite being, one theologian said this, we mean that his being has no ontological boundaries. And I looked that up, and I still can't tell you what that means, (laughs) but I think this is what clarifies it. He says, there's no place, there's no zone, there's no venue that his being does not permeate, which means his being is everywhere. We would say God is omnipresent, which means he is everywhere at the same time. All right, think about this. Okay, God is outside of space and time. He's outside of it. He created it. He's outside of space and time. <laughs> so he's not bound by space and time, right? So he simultaneously not he simultaneously not only sees everything in the past, present and future, but he's simultaneously omnipresent in the past, present, and future at the same time. (laughs) Try to wrap your mind around that. I can't. So I tried. So here's the way I thought of it. Okay, God is present in Siberia the same time he is present right here in Edmond, Oklahoma. Part of God is not present in Siberia and part of God present here in Edmond, Oklahoma. All 
all of God's character and being is present simultaneously in both places at the same time. And that was redundant, I know. Sorry, you English people, don't, don't email me, okay? What does it mean? He is omnipresent everywhere with the fullness of his being. <laughs> Second, God is infinitely perfect. He's perfect in every respect. He is perfect in holiness. He is perfect in wisdom. He is perfect in purity. He's perfect in righteousness. He's perfect in authority and power. He's perfect in his will and in his decrees. Even though I may not like what his will or decree is. He's perfect in his judgments, which means there are no flaws or failures. There are no lapses or mistakes. And I know this opens up a lot of concerns and questions, right? Because if that's true, then why did he allow evil, sin, and the fall? And we're going to possibly touch upon those Later, not today, later, but later, later in the series. But think of that. If God is infinitely perfect, he's never caught off guard or surprised. He knew what would happen. And what happened was according to his perfect will. Again, even if we don't understand it, he has perfect reasons for it. Third, he's all sufficient. Whoa, man, he lacks nothing. He needs nothing. And he doesn't depend on anything. Which is going to raise a question that we're going to look at later in the sermon, not in the series. If God is all sufficient, then why did he create the world? If he doesn't need anything, why did he create the world? We'll deal with that. Fourth, he's eternal. Holy cow, he has no beginning, he has no end. There was never a time when God wasn't, and there will never be a time when God won't. Fifth, he's unchangeable. We would say immutable. In Malachi 3.6, he says, I, the Lord, do not change. Which means he's the same today as he was yesterday. And he's going to be the same tomorrow. Who God is will never change. It's impossible for God to change. Which means he has no defaults or defects. He is infinitely perfect in his being. Six, he's incomprehensible. And I like how R.C. Sproul said it. He says, humility demands that we understand at the outset. Okay, let's just get this straight right now at the outset. We are like infants struggling to understand a genius who is speaking to us in our own terms. (laughs) Our tiny minds cannot begin to grasp in its fullness the concept of God. So to say that God is incomprehensible, it doesn't mean that we can't comprehend him or that we can't know him. It means the knowledge of him is so far above and beyond us We can't grasp it. We can't attain it. 
The only way we can comprehend God is when God condescends to make himself known. Seventh, he is all-powerful, almighty, omnipotent, which means his power surpasses everything, which means nothing can challenge him. Nothing can rival him. Nothing can threaten him. Nothing can compete with him. Nothing can overpower him. God, in other words, has absolute power and ultimate supremacy, which means he controls all things. And again, that raises questions. (laughs) And that raises concerns. And I am aware of that. But we're not going to deal with them today because we've got to keep going. We can talk about that later if you want to ask questions about that. Lastly, God is all-knowing, which means he's omniscient. Think of that. All things are truly seen and truly known by God. He has knowledge and sight of all things which means nothing can be hidden from him. He sees all things. He knows all things. That means there's nowhere you can go that he doesn't see and know what's going on with you. He knows all of our actions and all of our behavior. (laughs) He knows every word we speak. He knows all of our motives. He knows all of our thoughts, even before we think them. He knows all of our heart. He knows all of our emotions and feelings. He knows the dark places where we don't want to go. He knows the deep recesses that we hide and keep secret. He sees and he knows all. Now, if we just stop there, (laughs) if we just look at these certain attributes to try to describe God, then we're left with a God who is so vast and powerful, a God who is so mysterious and majestic, we can't take it all in. If we just stop there, then God's going to remain impersonal. Because all we see is supreme power and transcendence. God would remain cold, distant, and terrifying. This is why Martin Luther, when he tried to search out the incomprehensible vastness of God, it terrified him. This is why he says this, True Christian theology does not inquire into the nature of God, but into God's purpose and will in Christ, whom God incorporated in our flesh to live and die for our sins. There is nothing more dangerous than to speculate about the incomprehensible power, wisdom, and majesty of God when the conscience is in turmoil over sin. To do so 
is to lose God altogether. Why? Because God becomes intolerable when we seek to measure and to comprehend his infinite majesty. This is why he says we must begin with Christ. He came down to earth. He lived among us. He suffered, was crucified, and then he died. Standing clearly before us so that our hearts and our eyes may fasten upon him. Thus, again, when our hearts and our eyes are fashioned upon him, what will it do? It will keep us from climbing into heaven in a curious and futile search after the nature of God. To truly understand and know God, we must begin with Christ. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 says this, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our forefathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has, and it's definitively, he has spoken to us his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He, the son, Jesus, is the radiance of, of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the power of his word. Man, what is that saying? Jesus makes the invisible, the infinite, the eternal, the all-sufficient, the almighty, the omnipresent, omniscient, immutable God seen and known. See, we can try to search out the mysteries of God's majesty, but everything that God wants us to know about himself is seen in Jesus. Jesus is the fullest and the final revelation of all that God wants us to know about himself. Right? What was our scripture reading? Jesus, show us the Father. Philip, God, do you not know me? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Which means what? You cannot know God apart from Jesus. This is what separates Christianity and makes it unique and different from every world religion. See, all religions, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, and Judaism, they all claim to have a way to know God while Jesus is the only one who claimed to be God. Other religions, they can have aspects of truth to them, but only Jesus shows us the fullness of who God is. And the doctrine of the Trinity is another aspect that makes Christianity unique and different than every other religion. Larger Catechism, question nine. How many persons are there in the Godhead? Answer, there be three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. These three are one true eternal God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory, although distinguished by their personal properties. The doctrine of the Trinity is that God is one being who exists eternally in three persons. Which means God, in essence, is what? Relational. God is Trinity. 
The essence of God is relationship. And Genesis 1, in the beginning, God. And then we have this weird, I don't, you, people can't translate it, but it's this, it's this dark, watery, chaotic something. And the Spirit's hovering over it. And then God speaks. And he creates. But he speaks through his word. <laughs> Who we found out in John was with God and was God. The word is Jesus, his son. So Jesus is the creator. So we got all three there. But then when you, you, know, you go all the way through the Old Testament, you don't understand how all these three are one. So it's not until Jesus takes on flesh and dwells among us that we see how the triune God relates to himself. And I'll just give you one example because it's at Jesus' baptism is where I believe you see it, okay? The way Mark describes it in his gospel, you've got the Father, the glory cloud, the Shekinah glory cloud of God that led Israel in the wilderness is now right here at Jesus' baptism. And he speaks and he says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then you got the spirit descending down like a dove and he's literally filling Jesus with power. And what's Jesus doing at this baptism? He's submitting to, he's serving, he's honoring, he's exalting his father. So here you have the father's enveloping the son with his love and his adoration. You have the Spirit filling Jesus with power. You have Jesus honoring, serving, and exalting the Father. One commentator said this, This is what has been happening in the interior life of the Trinity from all eternity. Mark is giving us a glimpse into the very heart of reality, the meaning of life, the essence of the universe. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, he calls it the dance. He says, in Christianity, God, it's not a static thing, but a dynamic, pulsating activity, a life, almost kind of a drama. <laughs> almost, he says, if you will not think me irreverent, a kind of dance. Now, apologist and theologian Cornelius Plantiga, he develops Lewis's concept further about how all three members of the Trinity seek to exalt, honor, glorify, and serve the others. He says this, the persons within God exalt each other, commune with each other, defer to one another. Each divine person harbors the other at the center of his being. In constant movement and overture and acceptance, each person envelops and encircles the other. And the word he uses to describe it is the word where we get choreography. A dance. God's interior life, therefore, he says, overflows with regard for others. Or if I were John, in 1 John 4, I would say it this way, God is love. 
When John says that God is love, he is saying that love is the substance and nature of who God is. Love is not a part of God, and it's not one of many things that God does. Love is the very essence and nature of who God is, and love drives all that God does. So the Trinity is what? It's God in a loving relationship with himself amongst the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, where each is revolving their life, dancing their life around the other. And again, this doctrine is what separates Christianity from every religion and every philosophy. See... Because God is relational, he's not unipersonal. Which means if there was no trinity, then until God created beings, there was no love. Because what's love? Love is something given to somebody else or something else. See, if God were not relational but unipersonal, then what would he be? He'd be all-powerful, he'd be sovereign, and he'd be majestic from all eternity, but what would he not be? Love. That's where Tim Keller in his book, The Reason for God, he argues, if God were unipersonal and not relational, then love is not the essence of God nor is love at the heart of the universe. What would be the essence of God then? Power. Isn't that interesting? This is a side note. Keller doesn't say this, but (laughs) that's Islam's God, is it not? Allah? Unipersonal? Powerful? But not love. Because he has no relationship. Ultimate reality, Keller goes on to say, is a community of persons who know and love one another. This is what the universe, God, history, and life is all about. Because God is love, doesn't this explain then why God created the world and made us in his image? (laughs) See, God did not create us because he needs us. He's perfectly loving in the community of the Trinity. God created us not because he needs us, but so he could put his love on display. So he could give his love to his creatures that he made. See, he created us, in other words, in his image so we could participate in the dance. And display and reflect him to others. And then doesn't God as Trinity also explain then what our purpose in life is? See, God intended what? That his creatures would revolve their lives around him. That his creatures would find life and find their meaning, find their value from him and in his love. And when we do, what would happen? We would dance and revolve our life around the good of others. 
just like God. In Genesis 1, after God created the world, we have this refrain six times after each day, right? And God saw what he had created, and he declared it what? Good. God saw it was good. God saw it was good. And then we come to Genesis 2, and also we're told, wait a minute, something's not good. (laughs) When God created Adam, he says, this is not good. Why? What's not good about what he sees? It's not good for man to be alone. Think of it. He didn't create Eve because Adam was lonely. He created Eve because Adam had nobody to reflect God to. Adam had nobody to revolve his life around. Adam had nobody to reflect God back to him. He had nobody who would revolve their life around him. So what's going on here? What God says is not good is that when he looked at Adam, he didn't see himself. He didn't see himself reflected back. So what does God do? Well, he created them, male and female. Why? In his image. Why? To reflect and display him to one another. Gosh. This is God's original intent. But in Genesis 3, that all changed when Adam and Eve chose to step outside of the dance and they became static and stationary. Adam and Eve chose to find meaning and value apart from God. They stopped centering and circling their lives around God. And because of that, what happens? They became static, they became stationary, they became self-centered. They selfishly wanted to be in the center, (laughs) but have the other, oh, circle around them. So instead of imaging forth God, Adam and Eve began to image forth the serpent. And because they did, when they looked at each other, they did not see God's reflection mirrored back to them. Instead, what did they see? They saw their nakedness. They saw their sin exposed, and they immediately experienced shame and fear, and then tried to hide, and then cover it up. Ever since Genesis 3, fear and shame are human beings' greatest struggles. Because fear and shame affects all of our relationships, don't they? It could be any relationship, husband and wife, parent and child, siblings, friends, neighbors. If someone is afraid of how other people view them or afraid of how other people feel about them, it doesn't just affect them, but it affects the relationship. Why? Because what does fear do? It causes us to withdraw from one another. 
It causes us to put up barriers between each other. It causes us to be insecure. It also causes us to wear masks in front of one another, pretending, trying to give off an impression that's not really there. Fear causes us to manipulate others. Fear causes us to try to gain control over others. Ultimately, what does fear lead to? Fractured relationships. The insecurity we feel, it causes us to put up barriers and to distance ourselves from each other. And then when, we, when, we, when relationships are fractured, love is nowhere to be found. The dance has stopped. Now look at 1 John 4, chapter 18. Chapter 18. Chapter 4, verse 18. There is no fear in love. Fear and love, in other words, cannot coexist. Or I could say it this way. Whoever fears cannot love. Why? Fear drives, drives a wedge between people. It distances people, while love unites people. While love reaches out and brings people in. This is why John goes on to say that whoever fears has not been perfected in love. This word perfected, it means to be full. It means to grow up, to be, to be mature, to be complete, to be perfect according to a standard. So think about it. Fear makes us empty, immature, and incomplete. While love fills us, matures us, and completes us. See, when you are afraid what's going on, you are empty. And in your emptiness, you can't give to others because you're always trying to get from others. Love always gives. It does not seek to get. So can I connect this with last week? Do you see now why the Bible is the one unfolding story of God as Trinity working together to redeem the world that is now fallen? Because fear and love cannot coexist, we need a perfect love from outside. And what does John say? That perfect love comes from God. Look again at verse 18. Perfect love, God's perfect love, is the only thing that can drive out our fears. And this is a violent word, okay, because this is a very, it conveys physical force. It is saying that God's perfect love expels, it casts out, it propels out fear. So what's John telling us? Only God's perfect love has the power to cast out your fear. Only God's perfect love can fill us, can mature us, can complete us. Only God's love, in other words, can perfect love in us. 
See, when God's love fills you, what happens? It enables you to now be able to give to others from the love that you have received from God. So how does John tell us that that love is seen, though? In Jesus. The Father sent his Son to do what? To restore the dance. The Father sent his Son to restore God's image in us. The Father sent the Son so we could find life in him. Look at verse 9 of 1 John 4. God makes his love seen and known through the person and work of his Son. So the God who is love acts in love by sending his son into the world so people could live through him. And just so we get this clear, look at what he says in verse 10. (laughs) Uh, This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. What does that mean? It means this, love is not defined, nor is love determined by what we do. Love is defined by who God is and what God does and what does he do. God as Trinity is wanting to assure you. He's wanting to assure you of God's perfect love for you. See, this is why we can never base God's love for us on our feelings or on our actions towards God. Because love is ultimately based on God's feelings and actions towards you. See, when you struggle and doubt God's love for you, when you fear that God is going to punish you, look at God's perfect love for you. Where? In his son. Who was punished. Not for what he did, but punished for all the ways you fail to love God and fail to love others. Jesus was the propitiation for our sins. He took the punishment. He took the full force of God's wrath, deterring God's wrath away from us and taking all of it upon himself. So, man... Jesus agreed to suffer the rejection of his father's love so that those who neglect his father's love could live safe and secure in the father's love. This is love, John says, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to give us life by taking upon himself the punishment that we deserve. So, When doubts creep in, stop looking inward and look outward. When fears and uncertainty fill your mind and heart, look to the one who propitiated God's wrath as he hung on the cross. In other words, what what is John saying? If you get the full reality of chapter 4, Here's what he's saying to you and to me. Jesus is God's perfect gift of grace 
because he loved God perfectly for you. And because he loved God perfectly for you, he is the demonstration and expression of God's love for you. When we see that, when that hits you, may it cause all of us to resume the dance and revolve our lives around God and revolve our lives around the good of others. Amen.